Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. I'm Leo Barassi, standing in for Kieran while he is on safari. It may be recess in Westminster, but politics hasn't stopped. It's just three weeks until local elections across Britain and until the Gorton by-election, which is looking like a bit of a nail-biter, with Labour defending a perilous 26,000 majority over the Lib Dems. I'm delighted to welcome back to the pod for this week's show, Lib Dem guru and compiler of epic polling spreadsheets, Mark Pack. Mark, welcome. Nice to be back again. Later in the episode, we're going to talk a bit about Brexit negotiations and the new mega poll from Lord Ashcroft. But first, the Lib Dems. They did so badly in 2015, I think it's fair to say, just eight MPs, that it sort of seemed at the time that they were pretty much written off as a political force. Uh, now, though, they're winning council seats across the country. Uh, they did well in the Whitney by-election. Stunning victory in Richmond. And it seems likely that they're going to be doing well again next month. Now, there hasn't been much polling on them lately. So this week, we focused our uh, political uh, polling matters, opinion, questions, just on the Lib Dems. And the results are interesting. To take you through them, and I'm going to start with what I think is perhaps the most encouraging finding for the Lib Dems. 41%, 41% of UK adults, that is, this isn't filtered by any kind of uh, uh, likelihood to turn out or anything, 41% would definitely vote Lib Dem or would consider voting for them. And that includes 47% of current Labour voters and 60% of Remain voters. By way of comparison, when we did the same for Labour a few weeks ago, we had 48% who were definitely or consider voting for Labour. So with 41% saying the same for the Lib Dems, it sort of feels like they're potentially in a similar territory. They have the potential to, well, more than double, in fact, more than treble their vote share as it is at the moment. It sort of seems like just from that number alone, uh, there's huge potential for the party to grow. Mark, what do you think of that? Are the Lib Dems on their way back up? I mean, to have a figure that's only a few percentage points down on the equivalent question for Labour is definitely really promising for the Liberal Democrats. Um, I guess there are two things to be slightly cautious about with a question like this. One is, it always used to be a favourite of Alliance and then Liberal Democrat supporters through the 1980s and 1990s, when pollsters asked, would you vote for Alliance or Lib Dems if you thought the party could win a general election? And the party would often come out at 50% or higher in those sorts of questions. And of course, when it came to actual voting in general election polling days, the party never got anywhere near that. Um, The other reason for slight caution about the figures is that if you look at the breakdown by age, uh, that wonderful 18 to 34 year age group full of wonderful, amazing, brilliant, talented people, which sadly I no longer quite fall into, (laughs) but also people who are much less likely to turn out in elections uh, than other age groups. Amongst that age group, that figure is up at 57%. So although 41% overall is quite good, essentially the more likely somebody is to vote in practice, so the lower you've the got figure a, is. Got a lot a of people of, yeah. who say that they like Lib Dems but aren't actually going to turn yeah. out. Yeah, and we've sort of been there before with Clegmania and so on. And um, so I think there's certainly you know no reason to be breaking out the bunting and, and looking forward to Tim Farron entering Downing Street quite yet. <laughs> um, but what I think it does highlight is something that is often sort of I think pundits in particular slightly overdo 
is how much people did or didn't dis- dislike the Liberal Democrats as a result of what we did in coalition government. Mm. And the, what this figure highlights is actually there, there is an awful lot of people out there, many of whom don't know that much about the party and maybe not you know, necessarily going to vote if you put a ballot paper in their hands right away. But as you were saying in your introduction, they're absolutely up for considering voting Lib Dems. They don't think Lib Dems are the spawn of Satan. Well, I mean, it's interesting. We've got mm. some numbers specifically on mm. the things you were talking about there. So uh, one of the questions mm. we asked was about whether people would ever mm. trust the Lib Dems again mm. after the coalition. I mean, we deliberately phrased it as as quite a sort of punchy mm. uh, kind of, I hate the Lib Dems because because they betrayed yeah. us and, and so on. Um, and... I mean, more said that they would never trust the Lib Dems again than said that they disagreed with that statement. Mm. But really, it was only 37% mm. that said that, 22% disagreed. But the biggest group were in the middle, the 41% who said that they neither agree nor disagree. So really, I look at mm. that, the, that result and think that it kind of in the direction you were saying, that actually, only 37% said mm. that they are never going to vote, mm. for, vote for Lib Dems. Only one in three. It's not, not that many who are completely out of reach. Um, and uh, just to sort of, again, mm. to, to, to the point of one, of one of the things you mm. said, I think a thing that surprised me and I think probably pushes back on a bit of kind of um, received wisdom mm. about how the Lib Dems are seen is that really the numbers for young people were no higher than, mm. than the numbers yeah. for, for older people. And I think one of the things that's often said about the consequence of the coalition was tuition fees mm. turned a generation off from the Lib Dems. Now, I don't think that the, those numbers uh, really bear that out. I mean, it might have been the case that, as you said, Lib Dems traditionally are liked by young people. Yeah. And, and so the fact that they're sort of in, in that territory of, of around a third to 40% say that they, of young people, said that they wouldn't vote Lib Dem again, perhaps is lower than it might have been. But still, I mean, it's sort of, it doesn't feel like it's, like it's toxic. No, indeed. If, and if you look back at the voting intention polls during the last parliament, the younger age group, the 18 to 34 or 18 to a slightly lower figure, depending on which pollster it was, that age group was consistently the most favourable age group for the Liberal Democrats. So you're absolutely right to say it is a myth that the idea of there being a lost generation. In a way, the position for Liberal Democrats was even worse. It wasn't that we just lost support among students, it was we lost support amongst everyone. Right. <laughs> but it wasn't disproportionately uh, amongst young people. And, and I think part of the reason for that is that I think most people's knowledge of politics and interest in politics is a bit like my knowledge and interest in women's hockey, by which I mean once every four years when the Olympics comes round, I start paying attention. There's a few weeks in the four-year cycle where I can actually name a few female hockey players. I watch out for the next match on TV. I can maybe even carry on a discussion about hockey tactics. And then the Olympics are over and the memory fade. And apologies, I cannot even remember the name of the, the, uh, the you know, medal winning uh, hockey team captain an- anymore. Even though at the time I was, I remember thinking, oh, wonderful, isn't she really impressive? What a brilliant leader she is. Now faded into, into and, th- and that's what people think about politics. And particularly, I think, on your point about sort of the legacy of coalition, what I think was really striking from the British election study, you know, the big gold standard research at uh, the last election, was when they were asking people what they thought of the Liberal Democrat record, it wasn't that huge numbers of people were saying they thought what the Lib Dems had done in government was awful. It was the big chunk of people were saying, we don't really know what you did. 
not hate you, don't love you, but just ugh, don't know. Yeah. Um, and you could say that was a failing of the party. I think it also partly reflects people's general lack of interest in politics. But absolutely what it means is that those, you know, those conversations that loads of colleagues and myself in the party have had on doorsteps of the very angry voters, those reflect genuine heartfelt anger from some people, but that is from some people. Mm. And the wider public view of the party is much more one of, mm, don't really know, don't have that strong feeling. Yeah, I think I remember um, during the coalition, um, seeing some polls and, and writing up a bit that there was a, a general view that Clegg was hated. Mm. And actually what the polls suggested was he was sort of seen as weak. Uh, mm. rather than as, as a sort of a ter- terrible mm. traitor. Um, I think taps into the same thing. Uh, mm. So I want to talk a bit about where, where the party goes. Mm. I mean, one, of, one of the things that, that really jumped out at me and I think fits with the wider discussions of, of UK politics mm. and, and a possible party realignment is this question of how far the Lib Dems become the party of mm. stopping Brexit to become the party of, of sort of uh, hard remain perhaps. So, I mean, in, in those numbers I just read out, 60% of Remainers say that mm. they would definitely or consider voting Lib Dem, which feels like, I mean, that, that in itself is obviously a, a large chunk yeah. of the population. I mean, we're, we're talking sort of get, getting on for 30%, I guess, um, some, something thereabouts. Mm. That, I mean, that's obviously kind of fantasy land in terms of uh, fantasy as in a, a great success, mm. perhaps. Um, but is it, is it also fantasy in terms of impossibility? I mean, I think one of the other questions in the poll really suggests something in the opposite direction, which is we also asked how far people said that they would prioritise voting for a party. Their top priority is to vote for a party that will try and stop Brexit. So, again, a wording that was deliberately very strong, much stronger than people saying Brexit's their top issue, but I'm going to vote for a party that wants to stop Brexit more than anything else. And that's only got 22%. Uh, So, really, this 60% of Remain is considering or definitely voting Lib Dem is a start, but actually when you boil it down to, if you are the party who is only known as Remain, then potentially your ceiling is is much lower. But it sort of feels the direction Lib Dems are going in, isn't it? That oh, they're, they're sort very of much so, yeah. Brexit. And, and I think there's a lot of mileage in that. Um, as you say, you know, the question in the opinion poll about, you know, is your top priority to support a party that will try to stop Brexit comes out with a bit over a fifth of, 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 of the public sort of saying that, that that's the case. But I think it's worth remembering if that question is worded slightly differently, much, much higher numbers come out. So if you look at the question, uh, you know, that, for example, Maury and YouGov typically ask about what issue people think is most important to them and their family or what issue is most important to the country, uh, Europe, Brexit, repeatedly comes out as the most important issue. Now, that is partly propelled, obviously, by Leave voters saying that. It's also partly propelled by Remain voters saying that. But it mm-hmm. does mean that within that, there is a big chunk of people... But, it, but it's not just... That That wouldn't just be stopping Brexit, mm-hmm. though, would it? I mean, even, mm-hmm. even Remainers yeah. might be thinking, well, the top mm-hmm. issue for me is making sure the government negotiates, negotiates a, a good liberal yeah. soft Brexit. Absolutely, and and here yeah, one way of one way of putting pressure on the government over what sort of deal it's negotiating is to vote for the most plausible uh, opposition to that. So, if you look at the Liberal Democrat result in the Whitney by-election, where Liz Lefman secured a huge swing uh, from the Tories, in a way helped prepare the ground for winning the party winning in Richmond Park. Uh, you know, a good chunk of people who voted for her, 
you know, certainly this is all the feedback from the uh, canvassers and so on, were people who voted leave, but they voted for a soft Brexit. So in favour of the single market, in favour of EU citizens being able to continue to live in Britain and so mm-hmm. on, and wanting to send the government a message about the version of Brexit that might get negotiated. So mm-hmm. I think there is potential for quite a broad coalition that actually encompasses some of the voters, but crucially, because it is crystallised about the question of our future relationships with Europe. It's not just a one, a very narrow, specific policy issue. It's also something that captures a broader outlook on life. And, and in that sense, there's a lot of common ground between, uh, say, soft, many soft Brexiteers and, and Remain voters in mm. that they are both sort of small-L, liberal, outward-looking, tolerant, comfortable with the yeah. idea of you know, Romanians living next to them in the way that Nigel Farage absolutely isn't. So I think I, I want to push you on that, though, that if, if the Lib Dems become known mm. as the party that wants to stop Brexit mm. and, and they become sort of the anti, anti-UKIP, mm. um, are you, do you think, I mean, are, they, are the Lib Dems keeping those uh, sort of lib, liberal Brexiteers, mm. um, kind, of, kind of people mm. who voted Brexit but want, wanted a, a, a very soft mm. leave? I mean, or are they looking at Lib Dems at that point and thinking we no longer stand for the same thing. Well, it's worth remembering that to be amazingly successful in a first-past-the-post election, not only do you not need most people voting for you, you don't even need 50% of the electorate voting for you. And as the SNP demonstrated with their landslide, you know, their absolutely enormous landslide, such Mm. a landslide, the landslide almost underplays it, (laughs) election result in Scotland, general election, you can achieve quite amazing things on well under 50% of the vote. And one of the things I think Liberal Democrats have often been rather nervous about in the past is staking out a position which results in lots of people disagreeing with you. And in a way, I think that's a mistake, is there is not a problem if lots of people disagree with you, as long as you get a chunk of people agreeing with you. And indeed, in many cases, having people disagree with you can help define you more clearly in the eyes of the public. So being a party that Nigel Farage really dislikes is not a problem, and indeed in many ways is an advantage, because it helps Mm. give a clarity to what the Liberal Democrats stand for. And that, this goes back to what we were discussing earlier, I think is what's absolutely crucial for the Lib Dems, because our classic problem has been that people see us as the nice people who aren't quite at the left extreme, aren't quite at the right extreme, we're sort of neither one thing nor the other. And if people feel that at a moment at which they also feel both the other parties are at the extremes... That's quite a powerful proposition. But the moment one or even worse, both of the other parties are seen as being more moderate, mm. the ground there just collapses well, under that's the party. Sort of, I mean, that's reminiscent of the last election, wasn't it? Mm, that they, absolutely. I mean, there was that disastrously played uh, poster. What was it? Look left, look right. And, and, and for, cross, uh, yes. Right. Um, you know, and I guess I, I, I take, take your point mm. that mm. that sort of if, if the other parties are seen mm. as, as sort of as sort of wayward. But, I mean, the Scotland example mm. that you gave is a really mm. interesting one because, obviously, independence was, by the time of the last mm. general election, very much still the mm. defining yeah. issue in Scotland. And it seemed completely reasonable to, to, to understand yeah. how yeah. Um, SNP, clearly they weren't mm. a single-issue party, but it, it was very much, yeah. you know, that was sort of mm. the, the first schism in Scottish yeah. politics. I suppose to, to replicate mm. that here, you'd need to except that a large enough yeah. chunk of the people at least, I mean, as you say, fine, you know, it's not 48%. We're not yeah. talking about Lib Dems ever yeah. getting 48%, but... Um, well, one day, <laughs> one day. <laughs> uh, but, but there need to be enough people for whom stopping Brexit yeah. or 
a conversation related yeah. to Brexit is their overwhelming mm. uh, yeah. vo- voting decision. I mean, perhaps the fact that we've got twenty two percent in this mm. poll is is sort of mm. what we're talking about, and and that that's a camp. But it's you know compared with where the Lib Dems are at the, at the moment, it's it's a good mm. camp. And, and it's a good stepping stone, because one of the things as well that we've seen, for example, in a lot of the council by-elections, um, and, you know, Political Betting published these very interesting numbers a few weeks ago, is actually the Lib Dem vote has been going up more in council by-elections in areas that voted leave than in areas that voted remain. Um, and that's partly because I think by staking out a very clear pro-remain position, that has both motivated and recruited very high-quality activists and candidates, which therefore helps uh, attract attract votes. And it's also because a sense of if you believe you know what a party stands for, even if you don't fully agree with what it stands for, that's what people like. You know, they like the idea that politicians have something they stand for. Just to interrupt you, I mean, one of the numbers mm. that, that jumped out at mm. you um, from the poll, wasn't it, was uh, we asked, do you, um, do you understand what, what Lib Dem mm. stand for? And you, you were impressed with yeah. that. Yeah, so if, if you take agree and strongly agree together on that, that comes out at 40%, um, which compared to the sorts of answers you get to that in the part, you know, in, in other polls in the past, is quite a high number. But also I think it's harder to prove this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the case. that I think If you were to then ask those people, what do the Lib Dems stand for? And compare that, if you ask Lib Dem insiders, MPs, what the party stand for, that you would see those answers are very much in tune. One of the problems the party's had in the past, classically in the run-up to the 2010 general election, there were probably a fair chunk of people who thought they knew what the Lib Dems stand, stood for, but then when the Lib Dems went into coalition with the Tories, thought, that's not what I voted for at all. And there was clearly a divergence between what voters thought the party stood for and what the party was thinking, this is what we might do. Yeah. Um, I suspect, although obviously you can't prove this from simply this poll's figures, that that 40% is not only a pleasantly high number compared to the past, but also one that is much less likely to be undone by events where people suddenly think, oh, May 2010, like, what the hell did you do? I didn't think that was the sort of party you were. Sure. Well, so talking of May 2010, I think there's one more question in the poll that uh, I'd really like to discuss, and that is a perhaps slightly cheeky, slightly speculative question that we put in comparing Mm -hmm. people's views on Lib Dems led by Farron or Lib Dems led by Clegg. Um, and we asked, would you be more likely to vote for, vote Lib Dem if Clegg was leader, or would you be more likely to vote Lib Dem if Farron remains yeah. leader, or would it make no difference? And the uh, the highest score uh, was making no difference, but comparing Clegg and Farron together, Clegg wins. So 28% said that they would be more likely to vote Lib Dem if Clegg was leader. 24% would be more likely to vote Lib Dem if Farron remains leader. So... Just on those numbers alone, if you had a sort of straight toss-up, yep. it feels like actually this former leader who yep. the sort of received wisdom is resigned almost in disgrace mm. after a disastrous election, mm. after an unpopular spell as Deputy Prime Minister, uh, seems to be more popular than the current leader. Mm. And I'm just going to throw in one more mm. poll finding, which is from the Ashcroft mm. poll, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm. The, uh, the, polls are, the poll asked... Uh, for ratings on various politicians and leaders on a 0 to 100 mm. scale, uh, 100 being the highest, and the results were broken out in groups of 10. If you look at those who gave a score mm. of 60 to 100, so anything above mm. just over halfway, only 9% give Farron that yeah. score. Now, a lot of those are, uh, who don't, uh, people who don't know, who don't really have an opinion on him, but Nine percent is a pretty terrible mm. score. So former leader scoring more popular than him uh, is, is scoring, uh, would attract more votes. 
hardly any, vanishingly few people are saying that he's doing well. I mean, would Lib Dems be better with, a, with Nick Clegg as leader again? Well, let's get the boring methodological point out of the way. Is Of course, the gap between the Farron and the Clegg answer is within the margin of error on the poll. So strictly speaking, we should say they're statistically tied, probably. Mm. But you're right, it, it, you know, those numbers are, 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 are close. It's not like Farron is, is well ahead of Clegg on that measure. And I, I think the, the, the explanation there is a very simple one, is Nick Clegg has been leader of the party through two general elections, both of which had televised debates. Tim Farron has not yet been the leader of the party through a general election. And therefore, it's not surprising that uh, when people are asked, you know, what do you think about the Lib Dems? And to compare somebody they vaguely remember a bit about versus somebody they've not really come across very much, that the memory of the past two general elections and TV debates pulls Clegg's figures up much closer to Farron's. So in a way, it's not really a like-for-like comparison because the real test is what will people think of Farron by the time we get to polling day in the next general election? Mm. Now, that necessarily involves some speculation, but I think the Ashcroft polling is very striking in this respect because there is a huge number of people who simply say don't know. So, for example, although uh, Tim Farron's scores are slightly worse than Jeremy Corbyn's on that measure... Almost everybody has a view of Jeremy Corbyn, whilst around a third of the, of the electorate don't yet have a view of Tim Farron, and that shows big growth potential. And in fact, you see this if you look back to leader ratings in the early days of Paddy Ashdown as leader or Charles Kennedy as leader. Min Campbell didn't last long enough as leader for the polling to move on from early days, really, but it, you know those two, it's huge numbers of don't knows to begin with, mm. but as they became better known, those don't knows fell fell pretty quickly. But it's so been I think a while, was... hasn't it? I mean, you know, this isn't mm. this isn't his first few months. He's been leader for uh, you know what, well over a year, eight, almost getting off. But, but there's been no general election. There's been no you know Olympics, women's hockey final. You know, that, and, I do. And, and I think that is you know absolutely <laughs> that's, that's, that's a mental yeah. image of uh, Nick Farron in knee leather shorts <laughs> yeah. that uh, you've left us with. There. Thanks for that. Uh, but uh, but I think that is absolutely crucial. Is that for most members of the public who pay a bit of attention to political news, but not that much. There has not yet been that centrepiece opportunity when you start paying attention to, mm. to party leaders. People are paying attention to, you know, who is who is doing well in X Factor, not who is asking which question. So, so you're saying those numbers for Farron aren't going to move until a general election comes up, in your view? I think you know, they may well move a little bit, but but the big the big thing is what happens in in you know, right right in the last few weeks in the up to polling day, and this is not a Lib Dem thing. I think this applies to you know all all opposition party leaders. If you become leader of a party in government, it's obviously slightly different. Mm-hmm. But you know we've seen similar patterns with SNP and Greens likewise. That yeah. you have to get that moment in the sun to really discover if they're going to be a popular person or yeah. not. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one one of the stories of the last mm. election was the fizzling out of the green surge mm. that seemed to happen when people started paying attention to Natalie Absolutely, Bennett, yeah. Um, and realising that she wasn't Caroline mm. Lucas. Um, last question on Lib Dems. Uh, I mentioned the Manchester Gorton mm. by-election mm. coming up. 29,000, bit, bit of a joke to call it, a, 26,000 rather, bit of a joke to call it a, um, a wafer, wafer thin marginal, <laughs> but I mean, it's... It sort of feels mm. almost doable. Mm. I mean, is it? Is mm. it? I mean, but Lib Dems are what in fifth. Mm. This it, isn't seriously yeah. possible, is it? Well, it, it's a fascinating test for the party because if you wanted to pick an area where the Lib Dems are up against Labour and to see whether this sort of very strong pro-Remain strategy can work in terms of making inroads, not just in a few Tory seats in southern England, Gorton is almost your perfect test case. It's an urban seat held by Labour in northern England that voted very heavily Remain, and which the Liberal Democrats have a past record, if you wheel the clock back 
sort of five plus years of doing actually quite well, getting up into a very strong second place in previous general elections, having a good handful of council seats uh, in the constituency as well. So this is a real test of whether that sort of pro-Remain approach can work in a way that we didn't really see in Stoke, because I think a lot of voters in Stoke, you know, A, Stoke was a leave place rather than a Remain place, but also a lot of Labour voters in Stoke were thinking, mm, I might quite like the Lib Dems because their stance on Remain, but oh my goodness, I've got to stop the UK. Yeah leader winning. No cover story, no excuse, no handicap in that sense mm. for the Liberal Democrats in this case. And I think you might expect me to talk up the Lib Dem, uh, you know, the Lib Dem chances. But if you look at what, you know, just journalists from across the media have been saying, it is very much, you know, this is a contest between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. And mm. yes, it is true the Liberal Democrats were um, not only not second or third or fourth at the last general election, but I think everyone acknowledges that it has returned to being a Labour-Lib Dem contest. As to exactly how far beyond that, you know, the Liberal Democrats will, will progress. Um, the thing that, you know, I've learned from working on, you know, parliamentary by-elections in the past, places like Newbury and Christchurch and Brent East and so on, is you get a, very often a huge switch in votes in the last few days. And therefore, although once everyone knows the result, it's easy to say, yeah, of course, that's what was going to happen. But in fact, it can be a very fine margin between losing by many, many thousand and winning. Mm. Um, so the class, you know, classic example is in Brent, you know, enormous swing for Liberal Democrats to take Brent East at the height of the Iraq war and all of that. But a week or two out from polling day, Labour would have won with a, with a comfortable majority and everyone would have said, what was the fuss all mm. about? Um, so I think in that sense, it is genuinely too early to make a sensible prediction other than to say, you know, Liberal Democrats doing extremely well, maybe even winning the seat is a possibility. Um, and I guess, you know, if Mike Smithson were here, the, the question would be, what are the odds that you can get? And is it a value bet? Mm. Uh, you know, as, as Mike repeatedly points out, it's, it's comparing what the bookies give you compared to the chance of, of the result. Mm. Um, and, you know, certainly when I last, last looked at the odds, I would say it did look like a value bet then. Mm-hmm. Last few minutes... Uh, I want to turn to the good Lord Ashcroft's mm. return to uh, to major mm. polls. Now, over the years, I've enjoyed delving through these and cutting up subgroups and uh, and trying to uh, take advantage of the, the massive sample size. So it's always interesting and useful when these new polls come out. This this one didn't have a huge amount of, of completely new territory and and often the sort of the nice thing about the about the Ashcroft polls is that they track similar questions yeah. over time and so it so it's very useful to, to look at that and perhaps that might be something that happens with yeah. these. But I think there was one thing that really jumped out at me with this, which was a series of questions that I'd say told a similar story that yeah. looks fairly problematic for the government. So there was one question asking who it, who people think has the strongest hand in negotiations, the EU or the UK. And among all, uh, a plurality thought that it was the EU. But among leavers, 39% thought that the UK has a stronger hand against 24% thought that the EU has a stronger hand. So there's a sort of feeling there among leavers that it's going to be relatively easy for the government to get a deal. Next one was... The, um, a small set of priorities that, that the pollsters offered people of what's most important for them in a deal. The single most important that came out, surprisingly perhaps, was the UK being able to trade with the EU without tariffs. Now, I mean, so I say surprising because I would have expected other things, things like immigration to come out come out higher and, and it didn't. And maybe that's because of how the question was framed. But nonetheless, 
I mean, that's something that's not mm. going to happen. I mean, the, uh, unless the UK goes for the softest mm. of Brexits, then there's going to be some kind of tariffs, um, whatever form they are. And then the last was a question on the UK being better off. Will Brexit make the UK better off? And I think, again, not surprisingly, we've seen similar things in other questions. Only 42% said that they thought Britain uh, Brexit would make the UK better off. But of those... 83%, almost all of them, thought that it's already happening or it's going to happen in the next five years. So you've got something in the territory of a third of people think that the UK is going to be better off from Brexit before the next election, broadly speaking. Now, again, that's a chunk of people and I don't. it's, it's sort of not, not totally straightforward to cut those two questions together and see, see who they are, but uh, I think you've got to expect that there are a lot of people, they're leavers and, they're, and being leavers, they're probably now conservative inclined or in, in that territory. So it sort of feels that's relatively tough. I mean, put those all together, it feels like there's pretty high expectations on the government to deliver something mm. good for Brexit, to make the UK better off, to do it fairly quickly. I mean, these are, these are tough expectations. I mean, it sort of feels like these are not things that the government can easily meet. I'm a sceptic on the idea that there's going to be an early general election for reasons that I've, I've written about and talked about on earlier podcasts. But this sort of feels a mm. bit like a data point pushing towards there being an early election, because in a few years, if, nego- if these are the expectations on negotiations and it's hard to meet, well, may- maybe life's going to be tougher for, for Theresa May. I mean, Mark, what, what do you think the government can be doing here? I mean, can yeah, you I meet, think, can I meet I, well, expectations? I think one of the big risks for the government on this is that public opinion can move quite quickly on issues if there is something that really crystallises that issue and brings it to life. And one of the messages that was definitely very powerful for the Leave campaign was this whole idea of taking back power. Mm. But that is a very abstract idea in a way. By comparison... Things like uh, free trade and sort of easy travel to and from Europe sound quite abstract at the moment, but the real risk for the government is that we end up in a situation where, for example, there are lots of queues at passport controls, and that suddenly becomes a very visual, very powerful, people trying to go on holiday to somewhere in the continent, stuck in a queue for hours. That's the sort of thing that can move public opinion very quickly to something that, actually, hang on a minute, what's been agreed here really isn't great. Or indeed, you know, the backlog of lorries in Dover, um, or one of, you know, one of the other container ports, because of paperwork that's required and checks that have to happen because all of the customs union stuff hasn't been sorted. So there's a whole set of very powerful visual stories you can imagine happening if somehow the government doesn't manage to negotiate both having cake and eating it. Mm. Um, And the difficulty is not only, as you may guess from the way I phrased it, I'm a little bit sceptical about the ability to do that, but remember the the key elements of of, of a a deal need to be negotiated in a way that receives unanimous support from the other side of the negotiating table, including all of the wonderfully obscure, well, obscure to us in Britain at least, uh, you know, regional assemblies in Belgium, for example. And for some of them, there is really not a lot of leverage that Britain can offer to persuade them to agree to a deal. Now, what Britain is therefore hugely dependent on is somebody like Angela Merkel saying, I so want a deal that I'm going to use whatever combination of carrot and stick is necessary to get all of those different people in the EU that need to unanimously agree. Mm. And of course, one of the things that, you know, if you're sat in the regional assembly in Belgium, you can be thinking is, well, if we don't agree this deal, I mean, the two years run out and then things happen anyway. It's not like 
that there's you've got to agree to something because otherwise there's some from your perspective immense crisis. It's well if you don't agree with anything, yeah, Britain gets to Brexit anyway, and so what from 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 that Belgian or or other perspective on the continent. So I think it will be really hard for the government to negotiate a deal, and there are lots of risks. And I think this is sort of almost the the government's Achilles heel mm. is that people end up uh, not just being unhappy with what has come out of the two year two year period because they're keen remainers. But it's also that people who might have voted leave end up being unhappy because they think the government has bungled the negotiations. Mm. And you can see a hint of that already, that although in the polling the Tory voting intention figures are quite strong, Theresa May's personal ratings are quite strong, on the YouGov poll uh, polling where they regularly ask this question about do they think the government's handling the Brexit talks well, sometimes the government's in the positive, sometimes it's in the negatives, it's bouncing along a bit. But that those ratings are... At best, one could describe them as mediocre for the mm. government, whilst polling on party intention and leader is, is both much better. That shows a weakness there. And if you know we do run into any, any, any trouble, the government will be desperately trying to blame anyone, the other side of the English Channel or the Irish Sea, for saying, you know, it's not our fault, it's their fault that they've mucked up negotiations. If they don't manage to shift the blame in that way, though, you can easily imagine the government ending up like the dog days of the John Major the, you know, the John Major government, mm. one, in that sense, major foreign policy stroke, economic policy disaster, mm. the ERM, Britain exiting the ERM, completely coloured people's perceptions of the Tory party as being weak and inefficient and incompetent. So if this is happening, I'm left with the question of what the other parties, particularly, let's, let's just talk about Labour yeah. and Lib Dems, are doing. So from what you've just mm. talked about, it feels quite easy for Labour, and this is perhaps a slightly counterintuitive mm. point, but... If the government is trying to negotiate, go through some tricky mm. Brexit negotiations, there's lots of quite technical deals. Mm. Well, you can sort of, it sort of feels mm. like Labour, well, the path's quite obvious. You set some some quite tough tests, mm. you know, your your five economic tests or whatever whatever you want to call them. And uh, you know, whether or not they're, they're achievable in a way, it doesn't really matter. You say these are the things mm. that people want and, and the government has to do that. You've got something to say. You could you could go on, you could talk about whatever story is, is going on at the time. So... Whether or not Labour's mm. succeeding in doing that, I think, is, is much more questionable. But I think you're being generous in, well, <laughs> in saying it's questionable. But, um, uh, it, but if, if the Lib Dems line mm. is purely, we need to stop Brexit, we need to have a second mm. referendum or whatever the mechanism is, then what, what, how can the Lib Dems stay relevant when, when the conversation is, is turning to farm subsidies or turning to uh, tar- tariffs on Chinese products or whatever? I mean, what... What can Lib Dem say other than we need to not do this at all? Well, in a way, I think that sequence of issues actually makes it easier for the Liberal Democrats because the classic mistake that people fall into when they want to persuade someone else to change their mind is to tell that other person that they were wrong, maybe that they were stupid, that they didn't understand things. And if only you saw things the way I saw them, you would see the light and change your view. People are much more likely to change their mind if they are presented with new evidence. So it's not saying, look, you were wrong you should admit you made a mistake last year. It's saying, look, here is some new evidence. Now, I might think that you should have thought of this at the time, but here, from your perspective, is some new evidence that gives you a legitimate reason to think again and therefore perhaps come up with a different viewpoint. So I think the more that there are opportunities to talk about aspects of how Brexit is being negotiated, the more opportunities there are for Liberal Democrats to highlight aspects to that, which give people that perfectly legitimate reason to think, actually, this isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what Boris Johnson was telling me would happen when he was saying we could have cake and eat it. Turns out, 
that that that's not the case. And now that I now that we know that's not the case, it's perfectly reasonable to draw a different conclusion. So I think that will be very helpful for the Lib Dems. The big problem for Labour is Labour is, at least under its current leadership, so terrified of in some way being seen as not in tune with Brexit that even you know force you know vote, voting voting through amendments to the legislation that went through Parliament to put down some of those tests was something that Labour blinked on in the end, and we saw the the height or I guess uh, or sort of depth of this with the utterly bizarre Labour leaflet in the Stoke-on-Trent by-election where it presented Labour as being more Brexity than UKIP. I mean, it was so in that sense, absurdly over the top. But not surprisingly, when photos of that leaflet first started circulating on social media, there was a whole wave of people saying, that leaflet can't possibly be true, you know, that mustn't be. But it was genuine, yeah. and, and, and Labour is, is paralysed by this thought that we mustn't seem like we actually think we believe in what the majority of Labour MPs and the majority of Labour members and so on believe in, which is about being Remain. And, and, and being paralysed... In, a, in, in that respect would be bad anyway, but being paralysed and taking a position which is at odds, which the heart of your party believes in, it, 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 you know, I, 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 I think it's not a question of what are the opportunities there are for Labour, it, it, it's how damaging you know, will, 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 will that be for Labour. And that's why, you know, I think Theresa May's smart move is not to call an early election. Because the earlier you call an election, the earlier the odds are Corbyn goes as Labour leader and possibly Labour starts heading in a, in a plausible direction. You know, why waste the Jer- Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> on an early general election when you can, when you can, you, you can keep that card, as it were, in your pocket? Quoting the Daily Mash there. I, I, I yes, exactly. There was, that, this is how weird British politics is at the moment. <laughs> the Daily Mash's satire is actually pretty good, pretty good political punditry as well. Why waste Jeremy Gen- Corbyn on an election this generally year? Generally a couple of years ahead of yeah. everyone else. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Parrick, that has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I think the, the, the polling of political conversation and debates about Lib Dems are generally lacking. So so I think given the party seems to be heading on, only upwards at the moment, it's really useful to uh, be able to, to look into these numbers. So thank you very much My for pleasure. joining Glad us to be back. on the pod. The music you are hearing is Happy Days by Scott Holmes, licensed under <laughs> Creative Commons. <laughs> Happy Days for the Lib Dems, maybe not for others. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>